This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and tell a friend to help them find Out of Water also. Welcome, friends, to another episode of the Out of Water Podcast. I'm your host, Mark Lautenschlager, and joining me today, as he always does, is our pastor of education, Reverend Sam Kastensmith. And we are welcoming you to week four in our study from the book of Isaiah. And this week, we're going to be looking at Isaiah chapter 40. But before we do that, um, Sam, we wanted to, I think we want to set the stage. We're going to go through chapter 39 first so they can understand kind of how Hezekiah ends here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. You want to, you want to get <laughs> to complete the picture. We had such a good time talking about Hezekiah and our two part episode. Um, and in that, Hezekiah seems like this awesome guy. And I think one of the things that's encouraging in the Bible, um, and it's encouraging in a weird way is that all of the great heroes that you find in the Old Testament and everybody in the New Testament apart from Jesus, they all have these great flaws where they fail. They fall short. And it makes these characters relatable. And in chapter 39, you see flawed leadership from Hezekiah. Even after he has his great moment of faith, even after he's leading his people exactly how a godly king should lead him here in chapter 39 – uh, you see him make a foolish decision, and then you see you hear him <laughs> say something that seems rather selfish. <laughs> All right, so let's take a look. Uh, Isaiah chapter 39, beginning in verse 1, it reads, At that time, Merodach Baladon, the son of Baladon, king of Babylon, sent letters and a present. Huh, it's a present to Hezekiah, for he heard that he had been sick and had recovered. And Hezekiah was pleased with them and showed them the house of his treasures, the silver and gold, the spices and precious ointment, and all his armory, all that was found among his treasures. There was nothing in his house or in all his dominion that Hezekiah did not show them. Then Isaiah the prophet went to King Hezekiah and said to him, What did these men say, and from where did they come to you? So Hezekiah said, They came to me from a far country, from Babylon. And he said, What have they seen in your house? So Hezekiah answered, They have seen all that is in my house. There's nothing among my treasures that I have not shown them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and what your fathers have accumulated until this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And they shall take away some of your sons who will descend from you, whom you will beget, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon." So Hezekiah said, The word of the Lord which you have spoken is good. For he said, At least there will be peace and truth in my days. <laughs> oh, my goodness. So Hezekiah had been sick. And this is actually sort of an interesting bit to the story also. Hezekiah was sick. He prayed. And the Lord extended his life supernaturally, gave him and told him, 15 more years. You can leave another 15 years. Mm-hmm. And it's almost like, um, it's almost like Hezekiah had COVID brain, like long haul COVID or something. Like he had whatever it was about this disease, you kind of had a different Hezekiah afterwards. Hezekiah became very much all about Hezekiah. Look at my wealth. Look at my stuff. Isn't my thing, aren't my things cool? Mm-hmm. Oh, everybody's going to be taken captive? Well, not until after I'm gone, right? Okay, great. That kind of thing. 
Yeah, you've got you've got this up and coming kingdom, Babylon, which is going to conquer Assyria shortly after the story. And they send envoys, and the last thing you do is be like, "Look how much money I have." You know? <laughs> that is not a good decision because Babylon's going to be like, "Ooh, mental note. We'll come back for this," um, and that's exactly what's going to happen. But I think one of the other things, the Hezekiah, when you when you have the prophet who comes and says, "Your sons, like in the coming generations, they are going to be taken away into exile, and and Judah's going to fall, and Jerusalem is going to fall." Right? God had held out, had held. Jerusalem, but even Jerusalem is going to fall. And you have Hezekiah who who says, this word is good. <laughs> you know, at least there will be peace and truth in my days. Like I think Hezekiah, who's lived his whole life looking at the geopolitical realities around him, had to be feeling how much longer can we possibly hang on? Like how much more, how much more, how much more? And when he's told it'll be after your days, I mean, Hezekiah, it shows you Hezekiah in one sense is going, well, not in my time. Wonderful, yeah, <laughs> you know, like yeah. uh, because he probably, with the eyes of his, you know, flesh, is looking, saying, "I don't expect that." And chapter forty itself is Isaiah prophesying about God comforting his people. The whole mm-hmm. chapter is about comforts. And uh, when we were doing this in personal worship this week, what I did was just picked five things that really just jumped off the page to me, things that really spoke to me. But as I was reading through the chapter, there are so many things in this chapter that if you stop and think about them, you can feel comforted. Yeah, and it's like you said, you could literally go through this chapter of Scripture and just pause every every two verses or so. Mm -hmm. I mean, and just think what it is that this Word is promising you and that if you really believed it deep in your bones – how comforted, how joyful, how hopeful you would be regardless of what the circumstances are doing around you. Uh, It's just a stunning, stunning bunch of promises that God is laying in advance of these people who are going into suffering. Well, now that we've set it up, let's get into some of these promises. It's Isaiah chapter 40, beginning in verse 1. It reads, Comfort, yes, comfort my people, says your God. Speak comfort to Jerusalem and cry out to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned. For she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. It's like the first comfort that God wants to offer Jerusalem is that she's been pardoned. Mm-hmm. It's like you you know you're in exile. You're suffering because of all the sin that you you know, you've turned away from me, you've abandoned me in every possible way. You've turned your back on me, you've become you've chased after these foreign gods, you've become indistinguishable from the lands around you (laughs) to the point that when they conquer you, they don't even know that your God is Yahweh, Mm -hmm. Uh, that kind of thing. And yet he wants them to know, first thing, your sins are covered. Yeah, and and the – you know, these are people that are being plagued by war after war after war after war. And when, when the Lord's word comes and says that her warfare, Jerusalem's warfare has ended, he's not talking. And we, we do wrong to read this thinking, oh, he's talking about the Aramaeans or Israel or right, Assyria right. or Babylon. No. Who is she at war with? God. Yeah. So when God comes and says the warfare is ended, he's talking about an end 
to the enmity between mankind and God himself. He has pardoned her. It's like he, he's put up a peace treaty. When, when Isaiah announces the coming of the Messiah earlier in, in Isaiah chapter 9, you know, who is this savior? It's the prince of peace. Well, who, who's, who's he bringing peace between? You know, it's, it's not that he's bringing peace between the nations. He's bringing peace between heaven and earth. And that's what it's talking about here. Your enmity against God is done. You've been pardoned. He is now your friend. He is on your side. He's your ally, um, which is a, a, a remarkable, a yeah. stunning at how precious that truth is. Well, and the other thing, too, to think about is that it doesn't say that her that she ends her warfare or that it comes to an end, but rather it is ended. Somebody has acted on their behalf to end mm-hmm. this warfare, just like it says that her iniquity is pardoned. It's like both of these things are something that someone else, someone external, in this case, God, does for Jerusalem. He brings mm-hmm. an end to the war. They're still fighting. <laughs> yeah. And God says, no, I have the war is over. I've settled it. That's the New Testament. While we were yet enemies, yeah. you know, Christ died for us. He's yep. ended the warfare unilaterally, even yeah. though we're still struggling and trying to get us thrown. He's like, nope, yeah. I'm at peace. Now, there's an odd uh, turn of phrase in uh, the, at the end of verse 2 that we talked about a little bit this morning, and I really love the thing you talked about in personal worship, so I'll ask you kind of to repeat that. But uh, at the end of it, it says, for she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. And I mentioned that the commentaries suggested a couple of different possible interpretations for it, one of them being that when you fold a cloth in half, that the top half completely and perfectly covers the bottom half. It's like mm-hmm. it's 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 everything that's needed. It perfectly covers everything. And then the other idea is that, of course, that the payment, the atonement made by Christ was so powerful, so effective, that it was enough to take care of, of double our sins sort of mm-hmm. thing. Yeah, so this word actually can mean – the word double can mean to fold. And it's like you talked about. You know, if you fold a blanket or if you fold a sheet, like every part of it is accounted for. It goes perfect length, corner to corner. So it's an exact accounting. And so what that tells us is the Lord has taken an account of our sins. It's not just this kind of nebulous idea of, oh, yeah, there's sin out there. But it's like the exact accounting the Lord is aware of. He's he's folded it and he's matched it, and now it's double is the payment. And the idea for the doubling of the payment for sin. So if you sin, you're you're required to to pay the debt that your sin has accrued double. That comes from Exodus chapter twenty two when when God has given the law to Moses. He says, you know, if you if you steal something or if you defraud somebody out of what they deserve, you have to pay double the restitution. Mm-hmm. And so what this is communicating is, one, God has an exact accounting of everybody's sin. It's not nebulous. He died for your sins, all of them, individually, the whole corporate body of your sin. He knows exactly what's there, and he's died for all of it, and then some, right? Like, did he double it? Mm-hmm. He's paid double the penalty because that doubling in, in Exodus 22, if you if you stole $10, you had to pay back 20 and so the Lord is coming back saying that he he has made good on a debt that you owe, and he's paid double, just like the law would require. Yeah. You owe this debt 
of obedience to God. He made you. He owns you. He's your creator and sustainer. Everything you do should be for his glory, and we don't. Like, we're, we're selfish. We do our own things. And so when we rob God of what he deserves from us, we are going into debt, but the debt is too big for us. Yeah. It's an infinite debt. And here comes Christ who pays double. He is atoned for the exact accounting of sin times two um, to make good on things. I think that's a good word for people who feel like um – Oh, the Lord couldn't forgive me for everything I've done. You know, are you suggest like I've done? You don't know what I've done. I like like I don't know what you've done. That's true, and you don't have to tell me what you've done. I, I, it's not my business to know. But you know what? God knows what you've done. He knows. Yeah, and I mean, you know, and and you can't. I mean, really stop and think about it. Think about the amount of the payment for an infinite God who loves his son with an infinite measure, hanging on a cross, paying the penalty for your sin, basically what you're saying, if you have that kind of hesitation, is you're saying, that's not enough. Yeah. Like, what? This is the infinite God who yeah. infinitely loves his infinite son, who gives his infinite life on a cross. There is no sin too great for that to atone for. Yeah. Um, this it's an Im- immeasurable, really, yeah. when you think about the debt is infinite, and he's paid it yeah. completely. Yeah. So uh, let's go to verse three. Uh, Isaiah says, "The voice of one crying in the wilderness: Prepare the way of the Lord; make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be exalted, and every mountain and hill brought low." The crooked places shall be made straight and the rough places smooth. The glory of the Lord shall be revealed and all flesh shall see it together for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. The voice said, cry out. And he said, what shall I cry? Now, you texted me earlier this week. We were kind of looking at this passage and you were saying, and I think this is good. um, This is a situation where the, the New King James, which we're using this time for this study's New King James Version, the emphasis in verse three is is definitely not what should be there. The, the way they have it, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, sounds like some lost person wandering out amongst the trees. <laughs> yeah, uh, crying and that's modern out. vernacular. We yeah. do that. Yeah, um, I, I remember somebody stepping down from a committee I served on, and he was like, "Oh, I feel like a voice crying in the wilderness." And what you mean by that is there's no one there to hear you. Right. Um, no one listens. Right. But that's not what's happening here. This is. I mean, it, it's. The voice of one crying, comma, in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Right. It's kind of the idea. It's like saying to all of those who are far off, those that are in the wilderness, those, those who are lost, prepare the way of the Lord. Make your way ready to come back to the throne, come back to the city. Yeah. You're lost. You're far off now, but you get ready because here he comes is the idea. Yeah, in the wilderness is not a preposition telling you where the person crying is. In the wilderness is the first part of the cry. Right. Yeah. Correct. Those who are in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Like, yeah, that's the idea. So, uh, to our friends uh, that translated the New King James, uh, you missed a comma. <laughs> <laughs> to be fair, in Hebrew, there's no commas, so that's, that's my opinion. But uh, there's a lot of a lot of people that agree with that. It's a, it's one that the uh, that and other it makes sense. other it makes sense, and other translations agree with you. I looked at the um, 
I looked at basically everything else, English Standard Version, New International, New American Standard, New English Trend. They all, same thing. It's like they either all have a comma or a colon there. In the wilderness is the first thing the voice cries. Yeah, and we're – it's – Speaking to people who are in exile, who yeah. are far from home. So yeah. it's like, you know, you guys in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. You're coming home is the idea. Yeah. I also think that it says, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. There's a lot of, of language in the Old Testament about straight roads and straightening roads mm-hmm. and straighten the path. Um, that's really kind of a meaningful thing in that culture because – you know, if, if they didn't have GPS <laughs> in the ancient world, it's like if there was a if there was the way to travel between two places, and that what it, it tended to follow the terrain. You went mm-hmm. up the hill and down the valley and around and however you needed to go in order to get to the place you were going. And this idea of somebody making a path straight for there to be a straight path, it's 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 decisive. It's deliberate. It's it's you're preparing you had to do some work to get it there um mm-hmm. and it, it's it's talking also that's it's common language for obedience you know you're not turning to the right you're not turning to the left right you know exactly where you're going you've set your eyes on your destination and you're not going to be diverted one way or the other like it's it's a it's a commitment and when you get to that next line where it says every valley shall be exalted you know every valley is going to be lifted up every mountain's going to be brought low you know, it's not just in this prophetic language. It's not just talking about, you know, geography or topography. It's talking about humanity as well. It's, it's talking, you know, Jesus talks about this. The Old Testament talks about this constantly, that those who exalt themselves will be brought low and those that are humble will be exalted. And so every valley is going to be lifted up and every mountain is going to be brought low and the crooked places are going to be made straight. That's what the gospel accomplishes, thank thank the Lord. You know, all of my crooked wanderings of the past and Christ made straight. Yeah. The the valleys, the parts where I'm you know, puffed up, they're gonna be humbled and the parts that are that are humbled are going to be exalted and everything. It becomes, you know, kind of this upside down, right side up, however you want to put it. Yeah. Kingdom where things are put right. Yeah. The rough places are made smooth. That's what the gospel accomplishes. Yeah. So verse 6 asked the question, what shall I cry, and then goes on to answer it with what is really a very famous – I talked about chapter 40 of Isaiah being the refrigerator magnet chapter. There's so many mm-hmm. of these verses that have found their way onto refrigerator magnets and the covers of Bibles and that kind of and, – and with good reason. I'm not – that's not a – you know, I'm not – that's not – I'm not saying they're trivial or inconsequential. It's because they are meaningful. It's because that they communicate so much in just a few words that that's why they've gotten to that status. And this is one of those in verse six, it says all flesh is grass and all its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades because the breath of the Lord blows upon it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. And when I looked at that one, as we were studying this chapter coming into this week, I was overwhelmed with this idea of the eternal and unchanging and singular, unique 
word of the Lord. Whether we're talking about his incarnate word or his written word, we're still just this idea that God's word is unchanging. The same books of the law that made the people weep in Nehemiah 8 when they heard them read, those are the same books of the law that you and I have in our hands today. We have this connection to our parents' generation, grandparents, as far back as you want to go. The word of the Lord stands forever. And that's just so intensely precious to me. Mm -hmm. And every generation, there's some voice that says, oh, within a couple more generations, the Bible is going to be irrelevant. (laughs) We've forgotten all of the people who said that primarily. (laughs) (laughs) And the word of God just keeps on marching forward and changing lives and and building this eternity that's that stands forever it's it's the word of god is awesome and one of the things that i love in in isaiah's language it's you know so poetic in israel the grass is green for a short season but then it's dry and it turns brown really quickly so this is something they would see very much all the time in in israel yeah. mm-hmm. you know where he's writing this that the flesh is like grass you know for a moment it looks really beautiful and then it withers and everything's brown for months and months at a time um and so he says all flesh is like grass well what does that mean you're going to die you know mm-hmm. that that's a you're mortal you are yeah. going to die and everybody has to wrestle with that reality and then one of the things that the next line there when he says all of its loveliness is like the flower of the field. The Hebrew word behind loveliness is a very famous Hebrew word, chesed. And what that word means, it's covenant love. It's it's like your, your bounding love, like what you commit to with all of your heart. And so hear what he's saying. All flesh is like grass and everything that it covenants with it's like the flower of the field like what you devote your life to what you are most committed to man it's like the flower of the field you might produce something with your life that is unbelievably wonderfully beautiful and it pops up and you're like wow look at that rose look at that tulip whatever but what happens the grass wither the flower fades because the breath of the lord blows upon it so not only is your flesh like grass you're going to die but everything that you devote your life to, your chesed, all that you give your life to, is like a flower of the field in this world. It's going to fade. Everything that you devote your life to, your business, your whatever it might be, anything yeah. in this world, is going to fade. Death is going to swallow it up. And so you look at that. It's very Ecclesiastes-ish. <laughs> the grass withers. The flower fades. There's nothing you can do to change that. Yeah. But the word of our God stands forever. And so if you're going to invest your life somewhere, where does it make sense to invest it? (laughs) In the word, in Christ, in God, because that endures forever. Everything else withers and fades. This passage, these verses here made me think of the verse in Isaiah 55, verses 10 and 11, where God is talking about his word going forth, and he compares it to, and it's like the rain and the snow that waters the ground and then brings life, that life springs up from that. So, he, And then he says, the same thing is true with my word. It, it will not return to me empty. It's like it always accomplishes what I send it out to do. And, uh, you know, I think that there's times in, in our lives as believers where we feel like, you know, we, we share the word with fan, friends or family members, loved ones, coworkers, whomever. You, you put God's word out there and you don't see anything from it that, at that moment, in that mm-hmm. instant. And it, it can sometimes be discouraging, but 
God's word will always accomplish what God sends it out to do. So even in those times when I, I, I think in our, in our, in our personal worship staff devotion time this morning, I was saying a lot of times, you know, you spend a lot of time watering that lawn and, and watering that hedge. <laughs> and the guy who buys your house from you gets the green lawn and the nice hedge. But that's true. It's like when you're, when you're out there watering what you've planted, that's not, it doesn't, it doesn't spring up immediately. You know, I think that's why God uses those metaphors to to give us a picture that we understand to say that, okay, you you put my word out there, you water with it, and and it will do what I send it to do. Yeah. Peter is gonna give his, you know, version of this inspired in his epistle, first Peter chapter one and verse twenty two and twenty three, he says and he's going to quote this passage. He says, love one another earnestly from a pure heart since you have been born again, not of perishable seed. In other words, not of seed where the grass withers and the flower fades, right, right. but of imperishable seed through the living and abiding word of God. Yeah. And then he says, for all flesh is like grass and all of its glory like the flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. How does Peter interpret that? He's saying – Look, you are you are made of a different kind of seed when you come to Christ. It's no longer perishable. The grass doesn't wither. You're not going to perish, but you are made of imperishable. And so now you do imperishable work through the living and abiding word of God. And what that means is the moment your life is yielded to Christ and the living and abiding word of God, that does not perish. Now all of your actions in this world have everlasting and eternal consequences. Now mm-hmm. the flower of your life is eternal. It's not going to fade. The fruit of yeah. your life is now eternal. It doesn't fade when you give it in Christ. That's the application Peter makes, which is awesome. It is. It is. Uh, so let's look at verse 9 where it says, O Zion, you who bring good tidings, Get up into the high mountain. O Jerusalem, you who bring good tidings, lift up your voice with strength. Lift it up. Be not afraid. Say to the cities of Judah, behold your God. Behold, the Lord God shall come with a strong hand, and his arm shall rule for him. Behold, his reward is with him and his work before him. So this the next word of comfort here is, Behold your God. This made me think of the conversations we've had where we've talked about how people look at heaven as the prize. You know, it's mm-hmm. like the goal of being a Christian is to go to heaven when you die. Well, that's true, but that's like not the whole truth. <laughs> it's yeah. yes, you want to go to heaven when you die. Why? Because that's where Jesus is. Yeah, and all the good stuff about heaven is just the overflow of his kindness. Yes. Like he's the one who's making it all for you to enjoy, but he's the substance behind all the stuff you're given. And, you know, I love what, how Isaiah is crafting this because you'll notice it's like, you know, remember your God. Behold your God. Like that's all you have to do here. And, you know, that the promise when he says his reward is with him and his work is before him, Right. That should be a comfort to us because when we walk, and Isaiah's not <laughs> foolish to this because he's looking at a bunch of people. Let's, let's take the faithful remnant that's in Judah at this time and they're like, man, like I've been doing ministry. I've been faithful in prayer. I've taken care of the poor. I've done all this stuff and yet I'm going to be taken to exile with everyone else. And what the comforting word that Isaiah has is look, like behold your God. 
remember him. He Don't be afraid. And when it says that his reward is coming with him when he comes, what does that mean? It means that you're, you're not doing this for the immediate payoff. You're not doing this so that you get to see things with your eyes and your time. You're trusting that God is ultimately in control, that he is working all these things for his glory and for your good, and ultimately he comes with the reward. Right. Um, and that might not be in your lifetime. Um, may very well not be in your lifetime, but you trust that God is good and his reward is with him, whether or not you see it immediately in this earth or not. Yeah. Yeah, when Paul was writing to the Thessalonians, that was uh, something that he said. He's talking about coming to the end of his life. And he said, look, hey, there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness. Like he had, he was looking forward to what was to come. And it, it's totally counterintuitive because you got to remember Isaiah is writing this to people that are going into exile. And what is he saying? You who bring good tidings, go up to the high mountain, O Jerusalem, you who bring good tidings, which is basically the good news, right? right Lift right. up your voice with strength. He's saying, like, go out and preach this amazing good news, and you're, you're kind of like, hold on a minute, I'm, we're going into exile. <laughs> you know, like, what, what is this good news? What is this good news? And the, what he's saying is, you might be going into exile, you might be going through hard times, but you have the promise of God, and that's just as good as deliverance. You know that he's going by his strong arm, he's going to redeem you, his reward is coming with him, he is going to accomplish his ends. And so even when you're in the midst of this painful moment, get on the mountaintops and preach the good news. Right. And what Isaiah is teaching the people of God that we are, we've lost largely in our culture is this the wonder of hope mm-hmm. that we might be in a season where when we look around, we don't see any daylight of good news coming through the door, right? We can relate to that sometimes, right? I mean, you look at all the things that are going on. You turn on the news channel. It's just – it's like what in the world and what is – what is the word of God calling us to do? It's calling us to get up on the high mountains and to celebrate with good tidings, rejoicing that the Lord and his strong arm is bringing salvation, that the daylight is going to burst through the door. And we can we can have absolute assurance of that. We can live with hope and joy in the middle of terrible circumstances. Mm-hmm. And Isaiah, you got to think like – he is preaching this to people who are in deep suffering and in a bad way, and you'd never know it because he's just he, – it's like he's caught up in this celebratory excitement of what God is going to do because God – you know, God had spoken to his prophet, and he gets a glimpse of what God is going to do, and it's marvelous. Yeah. We do not have reason to fear when yeah. we belong to the Lord. And although I'm sure that 70 years, which is the length of the Babylonian exile, that that when you're in the middle of 70 years, that's a generation and a half. You know, it does mm-hmm. seem like an endless amount of time. But when you set that 70 years against the history of God's people or and against eternity in particular, their their time in the Babylonian captivity was relatively short. Isaiah's mm-hmm. like, this is coming to an end. The Lord is going to, you know, the Lord is going to turn this around. Uh, and he did. Verse 11 is one of them that when I was, again, when I was doing personal worship, I kind of pulled this one out on its own because this one is so, to me at least, was like one of those really tender moments. Verse 11 reads, he will feed his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs with his arm and carry them in his bosom and gently lead those who are with young. That image of the shepherd, you know, gathering up the young 
lambs and carrying them pressed in close to his body where they can, they're warm and they're protected in his arms. And in particular, gently leading those who are with young, this idea that the Lord's relationship is covenantal with our families. And he's, mm-hmm. um, the shepherd picture is one that was, that was great. And, and some of it, Sam, was because uh, this week, which I've not done in the past, and I'm guilty of not digging into this. I went and read some animal husbandry stuff about uh, <laughs> sheep, because the term sheep, if, if I call somebody a sheep, if I'm like, ah, you're just sheep. Well, that's got kind of a negative connotation these days. What am I saying? You're not smart. You don't think for yourselves. You're easily duped. You follow people around blindly. Anybody can lead you anywhere. That's the furthest thing from the truth. The more that I was reading about sheep, I'm like, first of all, let me just say to the sheep who are listening, I'm sorry, I misjudged you. My woolly four-legged friends, I have misjudged you. (laughs) It turns out that sheep are highly intelligent and highly relational, that they've done studies that show that sheep can recognize as many as 50 individuals, like they recognize you by sight. They know who you are when you show up. They build this relationship of trust with the shepherds, that they are, they're relational and very family oriented, that when a female sheep gives birth, that those, even as those young sheep grow up, if they're not separated, they will continue to sleep together and, and to, to be close to each other in the flock. It's like there's families structure within the sheep. Um, and this idea that sheep will flee, well, they will run away from a voice they don't know, but that they get to know the voice of the shepherd and that they will come when the shepherd calls. And that's what Jesus was telling us in John chapter 10 when he describes himself as the good shepherd. He's saying that my sheep will run away from the stranger who calls them, but they'll know my voice. I'll speak to them and they'll come to me because they'll recognize my voice. This is, it's just, it's incredibly tender, this I, this mm-hmm. picture of care. But it also, in my mind, I've had like a, I've had like an epiphany <laughs> about what it means that God calls us the sheep of his pasture. It doesn't mean we're stupid and we yeah. need somebody to take care of every little thing for us. It means that we are intelligent and we build trust with our shepherd and we know him and we love him and we mm-hmm. recognize him and we run to him, not away from him. And yeah, which is a process because sheep are also, in addition to having that strong bond to the shepherd, they're also skittish and they look at circumstances and they freak out. It's why right. you have to have dogs, <laughs> you know, making sure they stay close. Like they will recognize, and the longer that they follow after a shepherd, the more loyalty and trust they develop for that shepherd. Right. But they're also like us, very like if there's a, a wolf, if something spooks them. You know, they are off to the races in their own way, and it takes a while to comfort them and bring them back. And so this idea that he's gathering lambs with his arms and carrying them in his bosom, like that's just – I mean, it doesn't get more tender than that. You know, yeah. those of us in the church um, know that my mom last week was given 30 days to live. Um, she struggles with lung cancer, and I've had lots of really great conversations with her about the Lord and – about heaven and one of the images that she loves the most is the idea of God holding her, you know, almost like a baby just nestled up and and resting on his shoulder and that the Bible gives us so many pictures like that, you know, including this one that he takes lambs up in his arms. It's just I mean 
how tender can you be? And that my wife, one of her favorite verses in all of Isaiah is the end of this one where it says, and he gently leads those who are with young. And, you know, for her as a mom, she's constantly battling this feeling like, you know, I'm not enough. I'm not measuring up. I'm not, yeah. you know, doing good by my kids. And this idea that, that the Lord gently leads, you know, those with young. He's not like, come on, get on it, move. You know, he's patient and tender. Like the, the just heart that you see of God in this one verse alone mm-hmm. is just – it shows a character that most people don't think of when they think of God. They think of God as this distant, objective judge who's ready to call balls and strikes. And here you see him as just this incredibly tender God who really cares for his flock. And when does the shepherd carry the lamb close to his body? It's when the lamb, when the ground is too rough for the lamb to get over. It's when the, the lamb is, is hurt and needs to be carried because they can't walk themselves. It's when they're, like you say, they're skittish and afraid and they, you know, it's mm-hmm. like we're taken off and running for the hills, running right into the wolf. <laughs> the shepherd picks that lamb up and carries it back to the flock. That imagery of being carried by the Lord as a lamb, as a sheep of his pasture. That's a picture of the of the shepherd's understanding of when we need him to carry us. Mm-hmm. You know? And a shepherd does things for the flock that the flock can't do for itself. The shepherd defends the flock. The shepherd does lead the flock, like it says in Psalm 23. It, he leads the flock to a safe and bountiful pasture. He takes them somewhere that they can find food and water and rest. Um, so just it's just. I don't know. Like I said, I I had a I have to admit I had a bad uh you know thing in my head about sheep. <laughs> and uh I've learned to respect the woolly ones. I I have a newfound respect <laughs> for sheep. Well, you don't you don't have to read books to know they stink. That that, that is, is true. That is for sure. <laughs> and, you know, but enough of this COVID quarantine and I don't smell so good either, so you know. <laughs> <laughs> the first casualty of any quarantine is hygiene. Um Anyway, <laughs> that'll get cut out. So uh, verse 12, in verse 12, we, we're starting to move into these comparatives. Like Isaiah mm-hmm. is asking you to sort of compare the characteristics of God, who is like mm-hmm. God. And, and I love some of this language. Verse 12 says, who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? That's talking about <laughs> the seas. That's talking about all the water that is like the hand of God mm-hmm. can hold the Pacific Ocean. Yeah, that's – and all of this is intentionally to contrast. So you look at verse 11 and you see this God who is just you know, the eminence of God, the nearness of God, the compassion and mm-hmm. tenderness of God. And it's, it's overwhelming. And what we tend to do is when we think of somebody who's really near and kind and compassionate, we tend to ascribe you know, weakness of some sort to that. And it's like Isaiah says, no, no, no. He's, he's the one who, who holds the sheep in his arms close to his bosom, right? Like right at his heart. But he also holds the oceans and the little hollowed out part of his palm. Yeah. You know? So this is somebody who is not just gentle. He is unbelievably powerful and yeah. strong and mighty. And and then the language continues from there. Measured heaven with a span. If you're not sure what the span is, that's the distance from the tip of your thumb 
to the tip of your little finger when you stretch your hand out with your fingers spread apart. Yeah. Isaiah is saying that the, the distance between the Lord's thumb and little finger can measure the universe, measure yeah. the heaven. Yeah. Right now we know of 15 billion light years in, in each direction, right? Right. Of the universe. And all of that just right there, right yeah. in his hand. Yeah. That's the one who holds you near his bosom. <laughs> that's, that's pretty comforting. I think he can take care of some stuff. You know, and when they talk about the sand being countless, we hear this other, oh, it's like countless as the sand of the sea. Not for God, apparently, and calculated (laughs) the dust of the earth in a measure. It's like God is aware of and can tell you how many grains of dust there are making up the earth. It's like his knowledge of us and everything in his creation is complete. He knows even down to the grains of sand. He's weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. These enormous mountain ranges, you're like, you know, you're you're blown away by the Grand Canyon. People keep telling me, Mark, you need to go see the Grand Canyon. And I always say the same thing. It's not air conditioned out there. And I've seen pictures of it. <laughs> nice. And they're like, no, pale boy, go outside and stand by the Grand Canyon because it's this magnificent thing. And if you see it, you'll be struck by it. And I probably should, because what would strike me is God knows how much dirt that was that got moved out of there. It's like he's he's the one that fashioned those things. He's the one that has made all that's here. So when you see these mountain ranges and great canyons and so forth, those are things that the Lord has set in place. He's formed them. Yeah. And that's, you know, when I remember when I was fresh in seminary, I remember a, uh, one of my professors was telling us how God introduces himself to Moses. Mm-hmm. And he, he follows a pattern often through scripture where he presents himself as eminent, close, near, and powerful. And so when Moses says, who shall I say is sending me? We always remember I am because sure. it's like God can't compare himself to anything. He's only comparable to himself. I am that I am. But right before that, he says, go and tell them I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so like that, there's – we have to wrestle and come to know both of those. He's he's the God of our fathers. He's the God of you know my friends and the, who's taking care of all these people that are very near to me. But he's also this transcendent God that I can't put in a box. He is entirely other um, and so tremendously powerful – that we can't even begin to understand that. But in the Lord, we have both of those that come together. We have a God who promises to have our back, who is grieved when we're grieved, who weeps with us, and who who can relate to us in our temptations and our sufferings. And yet, he is so beyond our imagination powerful and transcendent that it infuses that eminence with real comfort. Because he's not just somebody who's like, oh, Sam, you're going through some stuff. Let me draw near. But he draws near with this unbelievable might that has all things under his control. Right. That makes the nearness bring comfort. Yeah. And then in addition to being all-powerful, he's also all-knowing and all-wise. Verse 13 says, who has directed the spirit of the Lord or as his counselor taught him? Who did you tell? Did you have you told God anything that he doesn't know? (laughs) With whom did he take counsel? And who instructed him and taught him in the path of justice? Who taught him knowledge 
and showed him the way of understanding. These questions aren't implying that somebody did those things. <laughs> these questions are, are telling us God is the origin of all these things. And when you look at – when people study this stuff and you look at the amount of design that's behind the universe, it's now becoming implausible to, to say that everything just emerged out of nothing. There's so much information and design behind virtually yeah. everything in our universe that it had to have this unbelievable mind behind all of it. Yeah. It's inconceivable otherwise. Verse 15, Isaiah gets into some comparisons here. Verse 15, Isaiah says, Behold, the nations are as a drop in the bucket and are counted as the small dust on the scales. That's the, that's the dust on the surface of the scale that doesn't affect the weight. It doesn't register. <laughs> it's like, yeah, it's, you know, we didn't clean the scale off perfectly, but that's okay. It doesn't register. Now, if, if you're an Israelite living during the time of Isaiah, having lived through Assyria and now hearing about Babylon – you know, they would not seem like small dust on the scales. Right. <laughs> you know, that, that would be an all-consuming thought. You would be, you know, if there was if there was 24-hour news cycle back in the day, you'd be sitting looking at the headlines going, oh, my goodness, 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 <laughs> you know, working yourself into an anxiety attack. And God's like, you realize it's just that it doesn't even register on my scales. Right. Like, I've got this. What are you, what are you working yourself up for? This is just dust on the scales. Yeah, I, and I like the next line. Isaiah says, look, he lifts up the aisles as a very little thing. <laughs> you're, you're impressed by the Florida Keys and the Hawaiian Islands and these, you know, these chains of islands. Yeah, that's great. The Lord uses those as little, like, wrist things. Like, just, he, <laughs> it's a very little thing. He picks them up. Um, and Lebanon is not sufficient to burn. That's a reference to the cedars of Lebanon. Lebanon known for its trees and its wood, nor its beasts sufficient for a burnt offering. All nations before him are as nothing. Notice it doesn't say nothing. I just wanted to point that out for a second because the, the preposition is there. God's not saying, you're all nothing, you're worthless. But he is saying that compared to me, it's as if you're not, it's like they are as nothing. It's like God's greatness is so surpassing that, that when we walk into this like mental game where we start telling God what he owes us, God owes me an explanation. God's got some answering to do. God's got to answer for some stuff here. No, no, he doesn't <laughs> because we are nothing and they are counted by him less than nothing and worthless. Mm -hmm. It's like, when you compare us to God, that's how we measure up. Yeah, Daniel, is, he'll quote this, uh, who's a prophet later, who's actually living through the Babylonian exile. And he'll quote this and basically say, you know, who are you to challenge his will? Like, you can't oppose him. Who are, you can't say to God, what have you done? <laughs> you know, you, you don't have the authority to. Uh, all nations are before him as nothing. Like, yeah. they, they have no seat at the table of his sovereignty. They right. can't stay his hand. And yet when we ask ourselves, what is it he has done? Well, what has he done? He loves you enough to, that he's died for you. Yeah. He loves you enough that he's given everything to redeem you, to bring you to himself. So, yeah, it doesn't mean that God thinks you're worthless. That's not what this is talking about. This is basically saying we, we don't get the comparison. When it says all nations before him are as nothing, to your point, one of the chief driving 
points that Isaiah is going to make throughout his book is that this Messiah was sent to be a light to the nations. Yes. So in one sense, these nations can't stay his hand. All these geopolitical forces and empires and everything else, they're not going to get in his way. It's not like he's going, oh, no, not the Babylonians. (laughs) But he's going to send his son to give his life to be a light to those Babylonians. They're not going to get in his way. They're not going to change his redemptive story. But he's going to give his life to be a light to all those nations who are as nothing – in terms of being able to stay his hand or prevent him from carrying out his design. Yeah. So verse 18, he goes on with these same questions. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness will you compare to him? You can't even, your imagination isn't big enough to mm-hmm. contain a good picture of God. 19, the workman molds an image, the goldsmith overspreads it with gold, and the silversmith casts silver chains. Whoever is too impoverished for such a contribution chooses a tree that will not rot. He seeks for himself a skillful workman to prepare a carved image that will not totter. (laughs) Um, It's like there is no imagery that can capture this, and yet people try. It's like Mm -hmm. the people in those times built these enormous idols and and images of their gods, of the gods that they perceived. God prohibits us from making images. Like, you're not going to make a man-made image that represents me. Second commandment. I mean, it's a big big one for them. And whenever we come to this kind of stuff, we we make fun of ancient cultures for – for building idols, but we're really not different. You know, they had they had idols for, gosh, fertility or national security. Mm-hmm. We still worship those things, right? We just don't have gods in, in the place of it. We've become so self sufficient. The ancient world, you know, these different cultures believed that they were not in control of the fertility of the fields or the fertility of their. Um, herds or anything like that. They believed that there was some power that was greater than them. And so they built these idols saying, you know, really, my wealth is the most important thing to me, but I know I'm not in control of it and the world can take it away at any moment. So I'm going to craft an idol to to be like, hey, there's something beyond me that's in control of all this and I'm going to worship that. Today, we think we're smarter because we don't have idols, but we still worship the wealth. You know, yeah. we still worship the fertility. We still worship all the same stuff that they did. They just had, you know, statues to represent the stuff. We still worship the stuff. We just are so unbelievably arrogant that we think we're in control of that stuff. We yeah. make the money. We bring the bigger herds and the bigger bank accounts and everything else. So in a sense, we worship all the same stuff. We just throw ourselves in it and worship ourselves as well, thinking we control things in this universe. Yeah. Yeah, we have the idols, and uh, we think we're the gods behind them. Yeah. Yeah. So um, so Isaiah goes on to ask a question now to you and me, right? He's going to ask a question. Verse 21, have you not known? Have you not heard? Has it not been told to you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent to dwell in. He brings the princes to nothing. He makes the judges of the earth useless. Scarcely shall they be planted. Scarcely shall they be sown. Scarcely 
shall their stock take root in the earth, when he will also blow on them and they will wither and the whirlwind take them away like stubble. To whom then will you liken me or to whom shall I be equal, says the Holy One. So, you know, Isaiah is asking us this question, almost like, in summary, did you miss anything? <laughs> did you, everything that I've been telling you, let me just summarize it up in here. And God asks you the question, so who are you going to compare me to? Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, the metaphor that he's setting up there in verse 22, he's like, have you, do you not understand the whole purpose of why the earth exists? Have you not heard? Have you not been told from the beginning? Then he says this line that, we, that a lot of times we read right past it. It says, it's he who sits above the circle of the earth and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. And it's him who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them out like a tent for us to dwell in. What God is saying there is the whole earth is to be my tabernacle. It's to be where I dwell. And by the way, what can go inside the tabernacle? Remember what happened to King Uzziah when he went inside the temple? He was stricken yeah. with leprosy and then yeah. he died. And what he's saying is everything that is going to survive and go on to have eternal life and fulfill its purpose inside this tent that I'm casting over the whole earth has to be worthy to be inside my tabernacle. And so the princes are brought to nothing. The judges of the earth are useless. Scarcely shall they be planted or sown or take their stock take root in the earth. He's going to blow on them and like all grass, it withers. Yep. Right? Except that that is planted with an imperishable seed that is made righteous, right? Jesus gives us his righteousness. He takes away our sin. And what does that make us? It makes us into the temples of God. It makes us worthy to be the dwelling places of God Almighty. Now, all of a sudden, not by anything that we've done, not by our obedience, but by what Jesus has done, now we're worthy to dwell inside the tabernacle that God is making the earth into. And so it's it's really – that's what he's saying here. I am making the earth into my temple and everything that stands in its wickedness, that is not redeemed, that's, that doesn't have a sin paid for, that doesn't have righteousness imputed to it, all of it will wither and fade away. Yeah. And then I love the conclusion here. Verse 26, lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these things. Who brings out their host by number? He calls them all by name. By the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, no one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my just claim is passed over by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator to the ends of the earth, neither faints nor is weary. His understanding is unsearchable. It's like, we're going to say God's, you know, God's been around a long time. He's getting up there in years. He's slipped a cog. It's like something has escaped his notice. I have a just claim. I, you know, I'm puffed up with my own, like God's got some explaining to do. And Isaiah's like, you're acting like he's unattentive because that, that is by the way, something that in the in ancient times, and I know Sam's the history nerd, but that's me. Yeah. In the in ancient times, they used to attribute those human failings to their gods. Mm-hmm. Their gods were tired, or sometimes they missed things. They, they were, were on a trip. They were on a trip. They were inattentive. They were away. Um, that kind of thing. So 
they attributed those human characteristics to their gods. The expectation is something might happen that my God is not aware of, and I need to bring it to his attention. And Isaiah is telling us, oh, no, 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 no. That's (laughs) not how the Lord is. He's not tired. He doesn't miss anything. Yeah. So then Isaiah finishes, and I'm just going to say finishes strong, (laughs) because this is another another one of those refrigerator magnet moments. Verse 29, he gives power to the weak, and to those who have no might, he increases strength. Even the youths shall faint and be weary. Even the people that are young and should have an infinite amount of energy, it's like, you're going to faint and be weary, and the young men shall utterly fall. The best of our best (laughs) is not going to be enough to keep up everything, you know. Verse 31, but those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary, and they shall walk and not faint. It's like the best of humanity, your youth, your young men, the strong ones, the ones that can just work all day, they're not going to have, when when their strength fails them, who's there? The Lord is there. Yeah, and and that is... If you understand the human condition, that is such a wonderful promise. Like one of the things I love about the scriptures, it comes and tells us uncomfortable truths that we already know. Yes. You know, that the youth shall faint and be weary. The young men shall utterly fall. Like everybody who's coming who thinks, you know what, I got this life thing. I'm in control. You know, you're always dealt a blow that shows that you are weak, that you're out of control, that you're totally dependent upon you know, everything around you. And what does God promise here? To those who have no might, he increases their strength. He gives power to the weak. Um, and there is something about that that requires you, you know, to recognize your weakness, you know, to come with humility. But I love the – it makes me think of the of what he said to Paul when Paul was like, you know, I'm struggling with this thorn in the flesh and God comes and right, says right. – my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in your weakness. What God is coming to us with is to say, like, I see who you are. I'm not I'm not fooled. You don't have to put on the show. You don't have to be strong enough. In fact, I'm telling you, you're not strong enough to overcome the conditions of this world. You can't overcome death. You can't overcome all of the fallen injustices and frailties of this world. But here's the deal. I will give my power to you. I will clothe you in my son's righteousness. I will take your sin away. I will defeat death for you. I will give hope to you in what seems like hopeless scenarios. I'll give you comfort when you see no, no reason but but to weep. Like he, and by the power of his word, by the, the truth of his gospel, infuses all of the dark elements of our existence with his strength and it gives you freedom because now it's not about me being strong enough. It's because <laughs> if that's the case, my goodness, even the youth faint and grow weary and the young men utterly fall. Like we're destined to mess up. We're destined to fall into weakness and to mm-hmm. fail. But God never fails. God never grows weary and his strength is ours if we will come to him and confess our weakness. Yeah. There are certain Bible words, certain words in the Bible that that get used in a way that isn't necessarily the common vernacular. The word hope. We see a lot of things in the Bible that talk about hope, and we think hope like I hope you have a good day. I, I hope your birthday is fun. I hope that I hope we don't get any red lights on the way to church this morning. <laughs> you know that kind of thing. 
But no, hope, when you see in the Bible this idea of hope, it's an idea of a confident expectation. It's like, I know this is going to happen. You know, if I have hope in God, it's like, I know God is going to come through. And the word wait is another one of those words. In verse 31, where it says, but those who wait on the Lord. Well, how do we understand the word wait? Well, we understand wait as being, I got to put up with this. It's going to be my turn soon, but until then, I got to put up with this. I'm in line in the DMV. I'm at li- in line at Starbucks, whatever. I have to wait my turn. Or we think of like a waiter, like a wait staff, like I better bust God's tables. I better be back there doing dishes in God's kitchen. <laughs> and that's not what the word wait means. That word there means you that you anticipate something with trust. Mm-hmm. It's going back to the idea of sheep. It's this idea of, of we have built this relationship with God enough that we trust him and we can wait on him. One of the things that I noticed, I was reading a commentary that was talking about Isaiah 40, and they pointed out that all throughout this chapter, which is all about comfort and giving hope to a people that probably just see darkness closing in, and it said, notice how many times it uses – you know that the one thing that the people of God are asked to do is to speak out, to mm. cry out. You know, speak comfort, cry out to her. The voice of one crying out in the wilderness. What shall I cry? You know, you who bring good tidings, lift up your voice with strength. Say to the cities of Judah, like you just keep looking at all the stuff that God is saying to His people. This is what I want you to do. It's to prepare. Well, how do we prepare? It's by speaking out. It's by prophetically declaring the gospel, by telling other people about this hope that we have. And then all the actions of chapter 40, like you mentioned earlier, they're all done by God. Mm -hmm. Like it is the Lord who does everything. And when he does talk about the human flesh and what we contribute, you know, at the beginning, it's, you know, all flesh is grass. Well, the grass withers and the flower fades. But what? But the word of God stands forever. And then you get to the end of this and it's saying like your best people can't do it. Your best people are too weak. But those who wait on the Lord shall renew their strength, not because they have strength, but because God gives power to the weak. It's his mm-hmm. strength that mounts them up on, on wings like eagles. And, and that's kind of like in this, you see, he's, you know, we beat on this drum a lot, but the mark of God's people is this humility that recognizes we don't have what it takes. We're inadequate to earn God's favor, but thank the Lord. He loves us so much. That he's done it all for us. He has made us adequate by giving us his righteousness, by taking our sin. He loves us tenderly. He holds us close to the bosom. And when it talks about, you know, you know, that the the flesh is like the grass, and the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord shall endure forever. The word of the Lord became flesh. Think about that. Like that's that's the crazy gospel twist here, right? We have All flesh is like the grass, and the grass withers. But guess what? The word of the Lord endures forever. But the word, John 1, what does it say? The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And literally, the spoken word that we take so much comfort in, this word of God, became a man. And in his flesh, he conquered death. And he made a way for us, and he gives us the power of the resurrection to each and every one of us. In the power of the word of God 
is eternal life. And that's one of the main messages that you find in Isaiah 40. The word of the Lord will endure forever. So how in the world can you get eternal life? Hide yourself in the word. On the written page, in the flesh that is our Savior, Jesus Christ, hide yourself in the word because the word of the Lord endures forever. Everything else is perishing. Well, that's a good word, um, and I think that it's one that is fit to end on. Uh, I've, I really enjoyed Isaiah 40, Sam. When, when, I, when I was studying for personal worship, I think I texted you and told you that I, was, I actually had like tears in my eyes when I was going yeah. through this. Pastor Tom often says that there's, you know, Scripture is like fine dining. It's not fast food. You need to yeah. take your time with it. Yeah. And this is one of those chapters where it's hard to go through in a podcast because literally every verse – holds these precious truths in it. And this is really one of those where even outside of the podcast, when you get done listening to the podcast, go and just verse by verse, go through Isaiah and see what the Lord is saying to you. Yeah, um, Because it shows all – it shows his tenderness, like you said. It shows his transcendence. It shows his sovereignty, his holiness, his power, his wisdom. Like the character of God is just so on display here. And and what he expects, you know, he, he gives permission to men to recognize we are weak and inadequate. Yeah. We need him. Yeah. And thankfully, the God that we need is a very good God. Yeah. Well, if you would like to correspond with us, our email address is outofwater at riovistachurch.com. That's R-I-O-VistaChurch.com which is where you can also find all the back episodes of the Out of Water podcast at riovistachurch.com forward slash out of water. You can also find us on Apple Podcasts, on Google Podcasts, and on Spotify, or in our Rio Vista Church smartphone app, where you can also find the messages that are preached on Sunday morning that are a part of this same series, Isaiah, A Voice of Hope. Sam and I will be back next week with another in the series, and we look forward to seeing you then. We hope you enjoyed your time with us and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash outofwater.